weird. That was that. a weak intro. Yeah, I don't know. It was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why my brain hurts. Okay, so welcome to the Cold Pizza Party podcast. Hello. Welcome to the Cold Pizza Party podcast. <laughs> my name's Lubitsa. And I'm Adam. And we make a podcast about politics it's and TV. It's called Cold Pizza Party. Our politics are pretty far left. Yeah. Uh, we are leftists. And we talk Marxists. about politics and TV and politics on TV. Yeah, and even when we talk about TV, it tends to be about the politics that are under or ideology mm-hmm. underlying yeah. TV. But the first thing I want to talk about today is how many Transformers movies every billionaire could make if they liquidated their assets and invested only in Transformers movies. Yeah, we were thinking of having like a recurring segment that's like, consider this. Yeah, or this is a thing. Yeah. I don't know. I think we had a title that wasn't one of those. Oh, well. It doesn't matter. This is the segment. Yeah, well, I've been interested for a while in trying to, like, it's hard to get into your head how much money these people actually have, because you hear, like, oh, Zuckerberg has $68.5 billion. Yeah. And you're like, oh, 68. Pretty good. That's a lot of money. But, yeah. yeah. So, like, the first step is to think of it as $68,500 million. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, I'm like still, yeah, because I'm still in the camp where I'm just like, I hear like someone has a million dollars and I'm like, whoa, that's a yeah. lot of money, you know? Yeah, I think. And when I hear that someone has like a hundred million dollars, I think that's a lot of money. So the fact that there are people that have like, yeah, like 68 billion dollars, that's like really yeah. hard for 68, me to. 68,000 million dollars. Yeah. So like an, a normal person makes a million dollars in like a lifetime, right? Yeah. Like an average median American? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So Zuckerberg is currently worth, you know, 68,500 Americans in that sense. Um, or more if he bought cheaper people or less if he bought richer people. Um, right. Or like Bill Gates has $90,200 million. Microsoft only has like... I looked it up, 20 or 30,000 employees, I think. Oh, yeah. So he could give them all $2 million and still have a lot of money left over. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. Adam will drop little knowledge bombs like that on me and it'll really blow my mind. Well, I've been trying to conceptual, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm like really terrible at mental math. So then sometimes <laughs> when you say stuff like that, it'll just be like, oh, I never would have even thought about that. Like, yeah. So then we But heard... you found a great metric. Okay. I, I hope so. Transformers movies, on average, <laughs> cost $194 million to make. Which is already insane. Yeah, it's one of the, like, biggest, you know, one of the most expensive movies you could make. Um, and also one of the stupidest, which is why I think this is a brilliant metric. <laughs> okay, yeah. So, I made a spreadsheet, and first I have uh, some of the richest Americans. Like, I think Bill Gates is the most rich at... Uh, I'm just going to say $90,200 million. So okay. that's $90.2 billion. And after that is like Bezos and Buffett and Zuck and Ellison. Well, Ellison isn't top five, but I put him on here because he bought an island. Yeah, well, yeah. that's worth considering. Yeah, he bought an island in Hawaii, which like has a town, like people live there, and he just owns it. Yeah. So he's in charge of these little... He has Clubs. his own little nation state, effectively. Yeah. Like, Okay, so... Let's start with, uh, well, I, th- I first thought of Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett has $73,800 million. If he decided to liquidate all his assets and just spend that on Transformers movies, um, 
he could produce 379.6 Transformers movies. He could release one a year until, you know, almost 2400, the year 2400. Yeah. Yeah. And he wouldn't have to charge any money for it. We could just all go and watch it for free (laughs) (laughs) for 379 years. That's insane. Yeah. Bill Gates, who's the richest, could make 464 Transformers movies. Yeah. Imagine that's just your legacy. Like, I just bequeath to America... 400 years of Transformers (laughs) movies. Yeah. But that's, like, absurd, right? Nobody's going to spend their whole fortune on Transformers movies. Then they'd have no money. Right. Okay. So Warren Buffett could spend half of his assets on Transformers movies, and he could still make 190 Transformers movies. And then he'd still have $36.8 billion left over. Yeah. He'd still be one of the richest people on Earth. While but, making more Transformers movies than you could possibly watch in a lifetime. Like, or would want to. T- yeah, several lifetimes. Yeah. yeah. He could produce Transformers movies until, you know, for, for two for, for two centuries and still have 60 or uh, $36 billion. Yeah, never, ever. Not only would he not have to work, but like any of his family. For, yeah. Yeah. But why would you want to do that? That's like absurd. You know, that's a lot of money. Uh-huh. So let's say he only wanted to spend um, one-tenth of his fortune, that would still be 38 Transformers movies. <laughs> 10% of his wealth. Yeah. And he could produce 38 Transformers movies for all Americans and world citizens to enjoy for free. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. But, you know, these people love money, so maybe you don't want to spend that much. He could spend 1% of his assets and still produce almost four Transformers movies. <laughs> And he wouldn't feel it at all. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't even notice. Yeah. Yeah. So whereas people will like report on Transformers and be like, this is the most expensive movie coming out this year. You got to see it. Like the special effects are sick. They spent so much money on it. It's like, that's like news to us regular people. But yeah. he could spend, yeah, 1% of his wealth to make four of that movie. Yeah. And there's not only even five notice. right now. Yeah, 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 so you could just... <laughs> yeah. I also some bit, right? So let's say these uh, tech billionaires plus Warren Buffett, they just love Transformers. They want to give America Transformers, so they come together, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say they liquidate all their assets. And, well, let's start small. Okay, so they all spend 1% of their money on Transformers movies, these five people. That's uh, 19 and a half Transformers movies. <laughs> <laughs> And they, you know, they're not going to feel that at all. They're still yeah. going to have, yeah. You like, could have, like, a child born in America who, like, up through their adult life, like, has only ever experienced free Transformers Yeah, movies. absolutely, yeah. Every year. Yeah. Every year. And they would all still have, you know, basic, they would have the same billion dollar amount, yeah. but that decimal point would change. Slightly. Yeah. But they'd still have the same billions of dollars. Yeah. They would just have less millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God. Yeah. Um, if they all spent a fourth, that would be 491 years of Transformers movies every summer. Um, a half would be 982. So like almost a millennium. <laughs> and then if they put all their money in, it's oh, it's basically two millenniums. 1,964 years of Transformers <laughs> movies. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so I also looked up families. The Waltons are the richest family in America. There's, what, like four or five of them. Mm-hmm. They together could make 715 Transformers movies for free 
for the world to enjoy. Um, if they only spent 1% of their assets, well, let's do 5%. Okay, the Walton family decides we don't need um, $139,000 million. Right. Let's buy some Transformers movies for everybody. We can spend 5% of our wealth on that. 35.8 Transformers movies. Yeah. Yeah. But we can't afford free college education no. in this country for no. all people. And they would still have... Or healthcare. $130 billion left <laughs> after those 40 Transformers movies. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah. This is fun, but also very depressing. Yeah. <laughs> like... If the Waltons, the Cokes, and the Mars family came together and said, how many Transformers movies can we make? <laughs> It would be 1,604 Transformers movies. Just basically until the sun engulfed here. <laughs> yeah, long after, you know, everything's flooded. and um, At 5%, they could make 77. At 1%, you know, just a little bit of each of their money, they could make 15 Transformers movies. That's three times as many exist. Yeah. I think they should do this. Like, yeah. people would enjoy that, you know? Yeah. These three families should get together and just to rehabilitate their image. Sure. Spend 1%. Instead of building, muse- like, art, art museums in uh, Arkansas or whatever. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any other questions. I have one last family on here. Okay. I didn't know this family, the Sacklers. Don't know. I've never heard of them. They are new money. Oh. They have $13 billion. They used to have more money a few years ago because they invented Oxycontin. Oh. Yeah. Shit. They bought a tiny pharmaceutical company in the 90s, struggled for a long time, made Oxycontin. Purdue, right? Quickly, Purdue, yeah. Yeah. Quickly became rich. And in the past couple of years, you know, they're losing a little bit. (laughs) They created legal heroin. And now have thirteen thousand million dollars. There's um, a podcast called The Dollop where they do uh, American history, and they just did an episode on oxycotton. Actually, they did an episode on um, opiates that was two parts, and uh, it was very good. But they talk a lot about oxycotton and just how uh, really fucked up their business practices are. <laughs> so it's really funny that you bring that up. Yeah, how many Transformers movies could the wealth of oxycotton pay for total? <laughs> 66.9 Transformers movies. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And how many deaths? <laughs> <laughs> how many people died? But we get 67 years of Transformers. Yeah. So that is the my segment. Um, billionaires, wealth, and dollars converted to Transformers movies. It's very good. Very good. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for compiling that. I worked on that. I know you did. I like color-coded my spreadsheet. It's printed here in black and white, but... <laughs> Yeah, we should uh, share that with people so they can explore this information at their own leisure. <laughs> okay, cool. I could also sub in, I'll, uh, before I share it, I'll sub in like Pirates movies or the Hobbit trilogy. Those actually cost more. Or maybe we'll come up with something else too besides movies. Nice. Like theme parks. Mm. That'd be cool. How many theme parks could we make in America with the Oxycontin <laughs> fortune? <laughs> How many roller coasters could the David, could the Koch brothers create? Uh, well, they they've created a roller coaster called the American Political Scene. Okay, nice one. <laughs> okay, speaking of bad jokes, this week Joy Reid decided to tweet about Donald Trump and his wives, and she tweeted, "Donald Trump married one American, his second wife." and two women from what used to be Soviet Yugoslavia, Ivana Slovakia. 
Ivana Mil- from Slovakia. Right, it's a dash, yeah. yeah. Melania Slovenia. Yeah. Okay. So. Interesting. Is, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> uh, so obviously there's some geographical errors there, but more important to me as someone who was born in what, I, what has now been deemed Soviet Yugoslavia <laughs> uh, was that Yugoslavia was in fact never Soviet and had a very contentious relationship with the Soviet Union. Um but was socialist, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I guess that's if it's we're not be close. generous. It's no, it's too generous. <laughs> they weren't behind the Iron Curtain. No. Um, Tito's whole part of his like whole foreign policy vision was to be the third world, right? Yeah, to not be part of non-aligned. the West, not yeah. part of the Soviet Union. Yeah. 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 So that made me think that maybe it would be a good idea to spend some time talking about Yugoslavian socialism and Yugoslavia in general, and also like what happened and why it broke down. Um, there's actually a Jacobin article that came out. I guess it was last week. It was uh, seven seventeen. I guess Joy Reid didn't read it. Yeah, it came out before the tweet. Yeah, I know. Wow. Which is, I was, like, really surprised when so many people immediately called her out on it, because I would think that some people would not know that information, and I was wondering, how does everybody know? Yeah. But then I was, like, looking at, on Jacobin, and right there was the life and death of Yugoslav, Yugoslav <laughs> socialism. I was like, oh, okay. So I really like this article, but then there's a, a part where I really felt like it fell short. So uh, don't worry, dear, dear listener, I did some uh, research, and I will fill in that little hole for you. Okay. Plus, you're an expert. You're a Yugoslav. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I took a class on third world politics in college that specifically uh, tipped me off to the fact that this piece of the story was really missing. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to do my best. To be clear, I'm neither a historian nor an economist. Okay. Uh, I have a degree in political science, which is not a scientific field, and I'm not really sure, therefore, what my degree is for anymore. (laughs) But uh, anyway... (laughs) I'm going to do my best. So if someone, you know, is listening and then wants to, like, tell me that mm-hmm. we missed something or misunderstood something, you know, feel free to do that nicely. But I'm going to I'm gonna tell Adam a little about Yugoslavia here. Okay. This article starts out, During the Cold War, the Socialist Federative Republic of Yugoslavia represented to many a viable alternative to the Soviet model. Grounded... By workplace self-management, the Yugoslav system seemingly gave workers the right to exercise democratic control on the shop floor. So he talks about how this path of was a combination of market socialism and self-management, and it was basically created by people who were trying to avoid the Stalinist model for socialism. So what does that mean in reality? What's the model? Is it like worker co-ops, basically? Yeah, so basically what happened was that Yugoslavia was, like, so they basically, they tried out for a minute to be, like, friends with Moscow, and... You're talking, like, right after the war. Yeah. By, like, I think 1948, things had, like, like so immediately, basically, cooled. For a lot of reasons, mainly, though, that Yugoslavia wanted to have you know, independence. They had just fought for independence. They had just, like, overthrown a monarchy. Right. And as a result of that, they weren't really down to have someone now, like Stalin, who wanted them to run everything by him that they did, basically telling them what to do. So what they decided, though, that, like, 
the best way to kind of like get out without like causing a reaction was by creating a Marxist critique of the Soviet Union. To have some ideological backing. Yeah. So basically what they decided was that under Stalin, the Soviet Union had become a despotic bureaucracy. And the workers' councils, which Lenin once identified as the embryo of communist governance, had become integrated into a highly centralized state staff by an army of party operatives. Rapid industrialization forced agricultural collectivization, and the purges of 1936 to 1938 killed millions. And they also didn't like that in the negotiations with the Allied powers during World War II, the Soviets had behaved like an imperial power, carving out their sphere of influence and imposing their hegemony across Eastern Europe. And one thing I kind of noticed in the article, too, is, like, he said that they, like, broke with the Soviet Union, but in reality, they were never really with the Soviet Mm -hmm. Union. They were part of this, like, common form, which was, like, this... It was, like, the Soviet Union's way of trying to get other socialist countries to coordinate efforts, and they had, like, a newspaper and stuff like that, but it was always, like, a voluntary alliance. It was never, like... It never had any, like, the Soviet Union never had any power over the people who are part of it. So, but ultimately, they didn't like the Yugoslav foreign policy, which was much more radical than the Soviet foreign policy. So they just, they expelled the Yugoslavs and they moved because the common form used to be in, like, Serbia. And then they they moved it because they were like, Oh, they took it out of Yugoslavia. Yeah, yeah. I think also, we're not great on World War II history, but I'm pretty sure Tito did not get a lot of support from Russia during the war, except maybe no. He on. he's like the uh, Yugoslavia was like the only country that really pretty much did their own fighting. Yeah. Until like the very end, where the Soviets helped out a little bit, and that was a big part of the reason too why Yugoslavia didn't feel like they needed to be like thankful and dependent on the Soviet Union the way some other countries that had essentially mm-hmm. been liberated. But yeah, but basically they got expelled, uh, which is when they created this. Marxist critique, especially because they're saying like the Soviet Union is not a socialist state, but a state capitalist system in which a bureaucratic caste ruthlessly exploited the working peasant classes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people felt like, again, they were that the Soviets were acting like imperialists and imposing their ideology ruthlessly on anyone who opposed them. Yeah. It didn't work out well when they supported. It didn't work out well for the people who accepted their support around the world either. Yeah. Like in uh, when Mao was fighting across China, there was a, a general from that the Soviets sent. They sent like three Bolsheviks to help them too. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And at first, you know, they really helped with military victories, but then they like completely <laughs> fucked shit up and undercut them and made such huge tactical blunders that they lost all support. Yeah, well, they were just demanding that everything be done the way Russia thought it should be done, which mm-hmm. was absurd because they were in China, yeah. you know, and it just wasn't going to work the same way. Yeah. Which is essentially what, like, Tito was afraid of and what kind of the ultimate goal here was. Like, a big part of Titoism, which isn't covered in, or people call it Titoism, but, you know, this, this Yugoslav socialist idea was that instead of, like, internationalist communism, which was kind of like the Soviet Union model, where it was like, we're all going to be one big group together, Mm -hmm. you know, it was, um, I think they called it national communism. And the idea was that you allow communism to develop in each nation separately and 
in, in different ways because each nation has different conditions like okay. under which it'll develop and which it'll thrive and these you know nations of course like support each other but there isn't like a big ringleader you know so you could have different political policies in Slovenia than Macedonia no like Yugoslavia was one nation still they were states like Slovenia mm-hmm. Macedonia were states the idea is like you know the way that communism develops and what it looks like in Russia can be different okay. from what it looks like in Yugoslavia from what it looks like in yeah south america yeah south Asia. exactly yeah. cuba wherever yeah so to avoid bureaucratizing their revolution the yugoslav theorists developed a socialism that called for the withering away of the state and the creation of a society as a free association of producers so basically they ceded a lot of autonomy uh to the local governments who previously had not had a lot of power the workers but like you asked, like it's co-ops. Yeah, the mm-hmm. workers began to own all of the Music factories. Production. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, where they worked. Yeah. And yeah, all of the enterprises would now have workers' councils consisting of 15 to 120 democratically elected representatives restricted to two one-year terms. So like your your grandpa, right, helped build the factory where he worked and then helped run it yeah yeah so they built uh refrigerators Mm -hmm. and they like literally built the company where uh, like the the factory and then he was a director in the factory afterwards and he like helped run the factory and that's where my grandma worked too like as a secretary or something and that's that's how they met oh nice (laughs) so basically then two years after they like democratized the workplaces the yugoslav communists severed the party from the state opening up the government now party cadre would have to compete for ideological influence across different organs of self-management which i think is really cool so what's that mean in practice like you have to um, run for your political position even though you're a member of the party yeah like china yeah and yeah, and also, like, there are people now in these organs of self-management that, like, like have been in charge of shit, and they have ideas, mm-hmm. and they know how things work, and what people need in the factories and stuff. So now, the party cadre have to compete with those people, and, like, if you win for your position, great. If not, cool. someone who's actually experienced the work that we're talking about, you know, like, yeah. can become a... a party member who's influential in the government and helping make important decisions that's great i think that's so important i still really believe in democracy and i'm not really on board for any socialism that doesn't include a heavy dose of democracy this is why this is to me like the best system yeah Yeah. (laughs) at least that's been tried (laughs) it's important to have a system that can um, negotiate and integrate difference and to, to have like competing ideas yeah right yeah. I mean, look at China. If they could just, like, if those essentially oligarchs that run the party could just loosen it up, they could remain wealthy and in power, but, like, they would have to put up with a little bit of criticism now and then. Yeah. 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 But they could still be wealthy. But the way it is now, if somebody wants to get rid of the party and it refuses to go away, then you don't have a political outlet. The only outlet is extra political, is violence. Yeah. yeah. That's why, like, it's so frustrating, I think, in America why like our democracy can seem so stifling at times because there is nothing outside of the system like all the difference is incorporated within it yeah and well what's actually so funny too is that um when they were having this split in 1948 there are a lot of letters sent back and forth between tito and stalin i keep wanting to say putin for some reason i guess tito and putin yeah (laughs) Um, well stalin is putin 
Right? Yeah, yeah. We know that as members of the hashtag resistance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, there are a lot of letters sent back and forth that included, like, threats, and they did, like, try mm-hmm. to, like, kill Tito multiple times. But it was interesting that one of the criticisms that the Soviets tried to basically push onto Yugoslavia was saying that they weren't being democratic. And it was like, there, no, there was like a real commitment to democracy, yeah. especially compared to the Soviet Union. And I think I was telling you, they also tried to do some like maneuvering where they tried to tell, like early on, earlier before even the split really started happening, they were telling right. Tito to purge some of the people that were like really close to him that, that like basically had like fought and like come mm-hmm. up you know, with him. Yeah. And he was like, uh, no, that's okay. Like, but you have to wonder, like, how many times did that work? Like, then you break down this group. You mean group in other of, parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. You break down this group that struggled together and you sow seeds of mistrust, especially between that group and the one person who's yeah. like at the top. Well, you look at how poorly things went with the communists who took over Afghanistan in the 80s. They yeah. like immediately started killing one another yeah. at the behest of and the And how, how dependent that would then make you on the Soviets, right? Yeah. Like, especially if you're that leader who feels isolated and you did what the Soviets recommended to you, you know? Yeah. But anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting just since we're talking about I think that's democracy. part of the Eastern <laughs> European character too, like... Tito's not going to trust this, like, Soviet-Russian guy who came and told him some shit about the other Serbian and Macedonian people that he's close to. Yeah. I mean, he's also, like, struggled, like, together with these people for years and years and years and years, you know? So, yeah. I I don't... And I think that that was also maybe part of the difference is that they fought together, like... Yeah. For liberation. It wasn't, like, it wasn't that the Soviets came in and we trust them as our liberators. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, thanks for, like you know, allying with us, but, like, we, we got this, like, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so this this is obviously, like, a very good path, I think, to social, socialism. You know, they're really working to keep things decentralized. There's a lot of self-government and local government control and grassroots participation, and that's, that's kind of, like, the independent path that they were taking that was very different, obviously, from the Soviet path. So there were, uh, there was a lot of dissent in Yugoslavia still, despite how, you know, from our vantage point today. This sounds like a good path to take towards socialism. Miners in, I think, Slovenia uh, went on strike, and there were other people who were upset about their living conditions. Mm -hmm. There was a mass student protest of 1968. So there was definitely some discontent still. And he says, the dissent begs the question, what went wrong with self-management? What prompted the workers and students to protest the very institutions through which they were supposed to govern. Um, I disagree. I mean, sorry, I'm totally cutting you off. At no, the you're fine. Here, but I don't. I think there's always going to be dissent. There's always going to be a reason to strike. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I kind of feel that way too. I also like not to be super conspiracy theorist here, but when like the CIO opened their like reading room online, mm-hmm. I like looked up a bunch of stuff about Yugoslavia like years ago now because I was interested in it. Mm-hmm. And they like from I can't even remember what years, but very early on I'm had sure. intel like I read a report where they were talking about the different ethnicities and how they could be like what the mm. resentments were specifically between different <laughs> ethnicities and essentially how they can be like turned mm. against each other. And also Good like job, guys. Yugoslavia was like way more radical. So like they like shot down two US airplanes like uh, I think around like 19 
46, 47 or something like wow. that, that were in their airspace because they're like, fuck you, we're a sovereign nation, yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's one of the things that angered Stalin, too, was that Tito was like, we're not, we're not messing around. We're not going to mm. just, like, bow yeah. down. Like, we gonna, are independent. We're not going to wait for Russia to tell us what to do yes. either. Yes, yes. That yeah. was a big part of We're not going to seek their protection. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just saying, like, they, they definitely... That's pretty ballsy. Yeah. In a nuclear power age, too. Yeah. Yugoslavia didn't have nukes. I <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Yeah. To be like, um, I'm not going to listen to America or Russia. That was, like, the whole plan, man. Yeah. That's, like, the path he was trying to tread that was, like, very difficult, but, you know, worked for a while. Well, that's why they had to get rid of the Arab socialists, too. Yeah. 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 So I'm just saying, like, this, there, there are lots of different reasons why there might be discontent in a nation. And it, we can't rule out the fact that the yeah. CIA has been sowing seeds of discontent in especially socialist nations yeah. around the world. Jacobin has really not been doing a good job um, keeping in mind, like, the shit that the CIA pulls lately. Yeah. Have you seen yeah. that? Yeah. I don't know. I was really surprised that that was just, like, completely yeah. left out of Well, they of also this. have, like, articles about Venezuela now that... Like, don't bring that up at all. That yeah. Some of this dissent is surely stoked yeah. you know, by CIA and yeah, by, like, that sucks. the wealthy. Just even, yeah, even, like, corporations that have, you know, profit interests there. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know enough about Venezuela to support Maduro, for sure. I, I feel like he probably, like, I feel like I probably don't. Yeah. But still, I don't feel like... It's just, you just can't leave that part out of the story. Absolutely. You know, you have to, like, if we're going to tell the story of why socialism failed, why this form of socialism failed, like, we need to talk about all the different things that happen in the world, not just the socialism as if it existed in a vacuum, you know? Hey, guys, it's Lubitsa. I'm just interrupting real quick to let you know that... Uh, This next part of the conversation may seem a little disjointed from the first part, and that's because we paused for a minute and took a quick break, and then what you're hearing up next is us coming back from that break and first just talking to each other, but then realizing that what we're talking about should probably be included in the podcast. Um, But don't worry, we still are talking about Yugoslavia, and we'll get back into the discussion we were having before. Okay, cool. Also, I'm just interested in what you're saying, so that's fine. Well, that's part of why I wanted to do this one, is because I thought, like, I want to ask you what you think about... Because I'm going to ask you about some stuff here, too, in a minute. Cool. But, yeah, even stuff like that, like, not mentioning the CIA at all, I was really surprised by that. I was like, oh, that's kind of weird, because, like, this is a pretty commonly accepted thing. I don't think it's, like... I think some of the writers for Jackman just want to be more serious, like, quote-unquote serious. Starting. Do you know if the Soviet Union supported Hoxha in Albania? Um, they... Probably. Well, yes and no, because basically, ultimately, Yugoslavia, like, wanted to integrate Albania because they were very weak, and they were very dependent on Yugoslavia, oh. and they were also trying to... That would have been so good for ethnic tensions, probably. And they were also trying, I'll get into it a little bit, but they were also trying to um, integrate Greece. Mm. Uh, oh, and Bulgaria. But Greece had a civil war. Yeah. And Greece was chaos. But time. part of the reason that Stalin basically expelled Yugoslavia, in addition to the other stuff we talked about, was that, that radical foreign policy. They were like very determined to have 
a socialist Greece that they would ultimately integrate. And so they sent, like, very aggressively sent down foreign aid, well, Yugoslavian aid, to Greece and were helping them win. And then Greece stopped accepting it because Moscow was telling them, like, no, we're going to integrate Yugoslavia in and, like, don't accept this. And so they did what Moscow was telling them because they were, like, trying to be good socialists. And then they lost. Then eventually, Tito and Yugoslavia were like, okay, well, we have to, like, withdraw our aid. Like, they even had, like, safe space for them in Yugoslavia. Like, they could come in and, like, all kinds of, just, like, tons of support. And then they were, like, stopped accepting their support. And so Yugoslavia stopped sending it. And then they lost. Are you going to put this little bit in? I don't know. But I want to say something. Okay. Like... It's such a good example of, um, it doesn't matter if it's America or the Soviets, whether it's capitalist or socialist, but this project of imperialism yeah. is destructive. It's self-destructive. It's self-defeating. Yeah. And it, it it's destructive to the people who accept it. Yeah. 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 They were also trying to get Bulgaria in, and it was just, after, like, very early talks, it became clear that Bulgaria was just being really influenced by Moscow, and so yeah. they just shelved that project. And that was, like... They shelved that along with Albania for the time being, and then they focused on Greece. And then when that fell apart, they're like, "Okay, we just we just gotta yeah. focus on ourselves for a while." <laughs> yeah, hearing that, it's hard to not think of the fact that like Bulgaria and Albania, at least in Macedonia, are the two ethnicities, nations, are, whatever that have the most conflict amongst yeah. those three. Yeah, like. I know there's tension with Serbians probably over things, but not, not at all to that extent. Yeah, yeah, not really. Yeah. Whereas, you know, Bulgarians want to, like, erase Macedonians, not, like, ethnic cleanse them, but, like, assimilate no, but, them, yeah. like, claim them as yeah. Bulgarians. Yeah. And, obviously, there's a lot of tension with Albanians. Yeah. And any time that there's tension with Albanians in Macedonia, Bulgarians are ready to jump in and start a war so that they yeah. can. It's hard not to think, like, if they had all been you know, united know. in Yugoslavia, I that know. some of that tension would have been... I know. Or really Greece like and Macedonia. Yeah. That'd wow, be... yeah, that's crazy. For yeah. all the talk of, you know, Balkanization, yeah. it's really the countries that weren't part of Yugoslavia that have the most trouble with each other. Yeah. Right. Not counting, you know, Bosnians, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, and that's kind of and what disappoints Roma. me okay. about this article, though, is that is he really blames goal. balkanization, I feel like, more than anything, ultimately. Yeah. And it sucks, especially because, it, I'll get to it, but like I said, he leaves out like a really big important fact beyond like, okay, CIA maybe, or American interest nudging yeah. balkanization, ultimately, right? But, but even like if we just say, okay, that didn't happen, even though we know CIA interferes all over the world, let's say that didn't happen here. There's still another big issue that he just glosses over that really surprised me. Which is disappointing because I really like Jacobin, but yeah, I just well, don't think this was their best article. To be fair, they like definitely are not committed to a single editorial viewpoint, which is a little disappointing. Yeah. But it's not their project to just put out, you know, the correct opinions all the time. No, they, but they... I think a correct... This is supposed to be more historical than opinion. True. That's so I think point, a yeah. correct... Uh, full historical context especially like this is like i don't even know if this is going to be in the print jacobin or if this i think this is just an online piece it's already like six pages or something put in a couple extra paragraphs to explain things to give full context but anyway whatever we we should cut that part out doesn't matter (laughs) okay um 
so I'm gonna have to do a little bit of reading here for a minute because this is the part I want to get your take on. So I want to kind of like give it to you the way that okay. he puts it here. Without me interrupting you also. <laughs> so he says, um, the dissent begs the question, what went wrong with self-management? What prompted workers and students to protest the very institutions through which they were supposed to govern? Despite the theorists' idealized rhetoric, recent scholarship suggests the leadership introduced self-management not to empower workers, but to more effectively rationalize and discipline them. Unlike the Soviet Union, which used administrative commands and mass mobilization to reach economic goals, Yugoslav communists sought less coercive instruments to implement their policies. The workers' councils were intended to transfer economic control to the enterprise level. Workers would now be responsible for keeping the books, increasing productivity, enforcing wage restraints, and deciding whom to lay off. In exchange, they would earn money with wages supplemented by profit sharing. This redistribution meant that workers had a vested interest in their company's success, but it also demanded that they participate in a competitive market where efficiency and productivity would be rewarded. Self-management, therefore, went in tandem with market reforms that pitted workers against other enterprises, both in the Federation and in foreign markets. Um, so I'll read you one more thing here. This system had contradictory results. On the one hand, self-management opened the country up to the wider world. As the West, eager to prop up Yugo in independent Yugoslavia, mm. provided aid <laughs> and investments uh, trade with foreign markets flourished. Yeah, I had a big mm, yeah. there myself. But let's... The country's economic integration into world markets facilitated the cultural exchanges that gave socialist Yugoslavia its dynamism, as evidenced by the philosophy of the Praxis School, Yugoslav New Wave Cinema, artists such as Marina Abramovic and Rasa Todosievich, and... Leibach's music. Leibach? I don't, I don't know. There's also all that great sculpture, some of which we saw. Yeah, the sculpture brutalist. And architecture. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so my question here to you is like, what do you think about that? I thought just, this was a really interesting critique, actually. I think it's really stupid when he it says. It sounds just incorrect. Okay. First of all, the premise is wrong. Like, when he says, how but do we explain West. this dissent? Oh, yeah, yeah. There should always be a dissent. We should never have a society where you don't have some, where you don't dissent. Yeah, usually we question when, when you know, 99% of the people vote for the dictator, basically. We question yeah. why there wasn't dissent in a country. Yeah. So I think it's healthy that there was dissent. That seems mm -hmm. like it was a good yeah. unfair democracy. I think it's also a super interesting argument where he's saying basically these, we set up these workers' councils so that they could be the ones who choose who to fire, but it makes them feel empowered. Mm -hmm. That's a really super interesting academic argument, but I don't, I, and I'm not the most like well-read on Marxist economics and stuff, right. but I don't think in Marxism they're like, when we have socialism and we have communism, then we don't then we can give up the drive to efficiency yeah. and, and productivity. No, I don't I think so. I feel like so. the point is, like, we can, you know, a achieve equal or better efficiency and productivity because we'll be doing it in a humane way. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's weird. Like, somebody is going to have to be, like, in charge of this factory making the tough decisions. Yeah. Like, um, and I want to know more, like, maybe you have some perspective on what he's saying in terms of what the actual reality was from your family members. But I will say 
you know, growing up in a highly unionized area, everybody knows like somebody who is basically collecting a paycheck and doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not socialism. That's not communism, right? Yeah. It's okay to like try to remedy that problem. You don't just have to not fire people yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Well, so, okay. I guess I have a few thoughts there. I definitely think that was the stereotype of, especially like right after. Um, Cause like I went back to visit probably like 97 and 98 and stuff like that. So it wasn't that many years out from socialist uh, Yugoslavia. I went back to visit Macedonia and that was definitely like the joke or whatever Mm -hmm. was that like, oh yeah, if it's like a socialist work site or whatever, you know, there's eight guys hanging out and like one guy doing the job or whatever. Yeah. What's funny though is that's the joke about all men whenever somebody's (laughs) working, right? Yeah. Like a man goes out and works on his car and eight guys just show up and watch. Yeah. Yeah. Also, whenever I see construction sites, I feel like that anyway, but whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I don't know, like, I forget what your other questions Well, just, um, let me see. What's his quote here? Where were you reading? Like, was there a lot of exporting? I See, okay, one thing he says... I mean, I I don't know. I wasn't there. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But one thing he says is um, that... But I assume that was the goal, you know? Yeah. But he's making it sound like the leaders of Yugoslavia, right, are setting, are like forcing firms in, say, Slovenia to compete against firms in Serbia. Yeah. But I don't think that, based on what your parents said, like, we found this little map online that's, like, cute and for children, and it's, like, here's where the sheep comes from up in uh, North Macedonia, maybe, and parts of Serbia and stuff. Yeah. And over here is where they made the glass, and it seems like every region had its thing. It seems like it was pretty um, centralized in particular regions. You said, like... Slovenia was the first one to leave, right? Because yeah. they had all they had a lot of the like power plants and stuff. Yeah, infrastructure. Infrastructure. Yeah. So he talks about that a little bit. Um, he says that like essentially one of the other issues that um, that existed, I guess that maybe you would call like balkanization or whatever, was um, that prior to World War One, um, Slovenia and Croatia had belonged to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. While which I guess had benefited from wider economic modernization, um, while Meaning they were Western, so they were better. Yeah, that's how I yeah. that's how I read it. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas the which um, is definitely the attitude they have in those countries, isn't it? Yeah. To this day. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Um, and then it said, in contrast, the Southern Republics, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Montenegro, Macedonia, and the southern parts of Serbia had either been part of or dependent on the Ottoman Empire and had remained largely agrarian and underdeveloped. Dependent on or exploited? I know. I know. <laughs> I like, had a lot of issues with this yeah, article. Like, this I was guy? really interested and I wanted to like it. And then I just kept being like... It's hard not to take it like that. Like, you're saying, well, these were... Which, again, like, that is, like, in the CIA report, by the way, that I read, too, where they talked about some of the differences. They specifically talk about how, like, oh, well, like, Slovenians, like, see themselves as really Central European Mm -hmm. and more Western and, like, modern than the... And they see, like, yeah, these people as backwards. So it's, like, those ideas have existed in, like, I feel like, especially the Western read of Yugoslavia for a very long time, and... Certainly, I think they exist in Yugoslavia or whatever, the countries that used to be Yugoslavia, too, because everyone has stereotypes about mm-hmm. the other country, you know? Yeah. 
But I just, it was hard not to read this and feel like he's, yeah, like saying like, kind of like, well, they were better, you know? Yeah. And then these countries, well, they needed more development and stuff like that. And therefore what? And therefore, I guess what he's saying is um, there were kind of like two competing ideas for how Yugoslavia's economy should go. So the, um, like, like Slovenia and Croatia were like, um, we should be doing more exporting and we're like ready to do a lot of like light industry and stuff like that. And so um, we shouldn't be, and so we should get to operate without having to pay a lot of taxes so that we can like be untethered and make a lot of money basically. Mm. But the other countries were like, no, we need to have a system of taxation so that we can develop all of Yugoslavia. Makes sense. <laughs> so that we can, you know, be a robust nation with, like, a full mm-hmm. economy. Which, to me, like, in the article, he, I don't know, it was hard not to feel like he was more on the side of how could you, exports in, in Sl- Slovenia and Croatia. How could you side on, on that side in Jacobin? I don't know. That's also so because, like, America has both. America yeah. has developed agrarian industry like economy and industry and as well as exports and you know light industry and whatever else like to be a robust full nation it is good to have all of those things not to like you know prioritize one over the other but certainly if you're going to prioritize one i would think the like materialist analysis would be let's make people as many people's lives better as soon as we can rather than making some people who have you know, the ability to have good lives better mm-hmm. and create a discrepancy, essentially, between the material reality of, half, like, half the nation versus the other half of the nation, you I, know? Or I, at the very least, wouldn't be arguing that Yugoslavia needed more supply-side economics. Yeah, well, he's, like, yeah, I don't know. He does seem to be, like, all for... And when you're talking about America, too, especially when you're a young and growing nation, that internal diversity is, is um, extremely useful... And trading with yourself, you know, strengthens your economy. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I did find interesting, though, in his critique was this idea that um, basically by empowering people to be the bosses of their workplace, right, to own the workplace and the means of production and everything, that you're sort of creating these different teams then that are kind of competing against each other in a market economy. And how, and like, is that good or bad? Like, how does that, you know, he's saying it's bad. He's saying that that led to some of the problems ultimately, because, you know, you like simultaneously have people, you're like worker solidarity, but then you're also like incentivizing them to like crush the competition basically. Right. So I think that's an interesting, I guess I need to hear more of what this guy's saying to pin down his argument too. So is he saying that Yugoslavia needed a more like centralized economic system, Soviet style? I don't because then he like he doesn't really seem to like that style but (laughs) (laughs) i don't know maybe i didn't understand his viewpoint but i I mean i didn't get i don't know he just seemed to be i guess he was i guess he wasn't trying to argue for a different side he was just trying to highlight the problems that existed here okay um i don't know i thought that was an interesting critique that at least is is worth considering as you know people on the left as socialists who want more democratization in the workforce that you that when you do have like people still competing against workers that that's like a problem like i recently heard about how 
like, I think it was, like, people who were in unions, and like, teachers' unions and stuff like that, were having their pension funds, like, managed by, like, sometimes, like, hedge funds, or even if they right. weren't hedge funds, they were, like, financial firms that are, like, trying to, like, cutthroat. And so, like, in, in one instance, I forget, but it was, like, some kind of union was essentially preventing some other group of people, like, Staples employees or something like that, like, from unionizing you know because because the firm like owned i guess oh so like the teacher's retirement is managed by um like a a money manager company that that has invested in say staples staples. and they're like preventing them yes yeah and so this is another example where like workers yeah solidarity should be in concert but there are ways in which market forces you know, we'll still pit us against each other. Right. And I think but, that's kind of interesting. But should Yugoslavia only have one factory that makes pots and pans? I know? mean, I'd say Isn't no. Isn't it okay because, to have multiple? Uh, yeah. Even if they are competing against each other. And even if some, some of level. them fail, especially when everyone is ultimately guaranteed work. Yeah. Like, or that was like the goal was to have guaranteed jobs, yeah. you know? I think as long as you have, if you have guaranteed full employment... I think it's fine to have firms competing with one another. I don't. I would I don't think really so too. I would think that would ultimately lead to better efficiency and just better serving of people's needs and wants. You know. Yeah, I do have a hard time negotiating questions like these, and I think it's partly because we've grown up indoctrinated in the society. Yeah. But I, I, so like I am, I feel like competition is a good thing on a certain level, but I, so I don't want, but I don't want to like say, oh, everything I learned growing up in America is wrong, therefore we need a centrally planned economy yeah. where, like, the people in, what, the people in charge It just seems like a centrally them. planned economy is the easiest way for things to go left. Yeah, to, well, left to, or south, to fall like, apart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's a hard question for me to answer, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's one worth thinking about because, like, to me, like, when I... Setting aside this being Yugoslavia, just imagining the conditions that we've talked about that of like this very democratic, uh, both uh, governance, you know, putting a lot of power back into the local level governments, as well as um, democratizing the workplace. This seems like the type of socialism that I could imagine in Mm -hmm. America, especially like corporations in a market uh, economy that are worker-owned. Like, yeah. we already have that happening sometimes. Like, um, Deschutes from a uh, beer company mm-hmm. from, um, uh, no, uh, Bend, Bend, Oregon, yeah. is uh, worker-owned. Same with uh, New Belgium. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, like, one that I think I just heard about recently. I think it's called Modern Times. That's a brewery out of San Diego where they're not just going to be worker-owned, but they're fully transferring to, um, like, like, workers will be the owners in the sense of they'll be making the decisions as well right. as which um, seems necessary yeah yeah but it's really cool yeah there are different yeah. ways to have co-ops and this is like the purest yeah. form this company is going for and it's all because they're just like we love beer we love craft beer and we refuse to sell to one of these giant beer companies mm-hmm. which is who wanted to buy them but we also know we can't like work forever and we know that the people who who have worked for us like are the reason we have success. So we want to give them the right to own their own right. labor. That's cool. So I'm just saying this is happening in America, you know? Mm. And when I think about socialism, it makes me sad that it didn't work out in Yugoslavia. I think it would have been great. But I also don't 
I only worry about history in so much as like what I can find from it to bring to the future and the present, right? Mm -hmm. And when I think about like a type of socialism that could flourish in America, this seems like the type of socialism that could flourish for a lot of reasons. And so that's why I wonder like, this is an issue though that we'd have to like really consider and like work through, you know, like to have, like what do you do when you have competing firms yeah you got it in america i mean it's a big country right but we also don't want to crush people that's the whole point of socialism Mm -hmm. right so we need to like figure out a way to do that while i guess a big part of that is just having like you know a giant social safety net where you know if you have housing guaranteed guaranteed health care guaranteed education you know things like that then even if your firm goes out of business by the you know you'll have time to maybe find another job yeah it's not just cutthroat like anyway it's it's hard for me to think outside the paradigm of like creative destruction you know competition um but i will if somebody you know presents an alternative model that i find convincing but i don't think there is i think there's nothing wrong with having a socialism in america where you have a jobs guarantee where you still have businesses that compete with each other yeah try to you know make better products or whatever So. Yeah, I mean, we all still want faster, thinner iPhones in the right, end. Right, yeah. So I don't really think But we just don't want people in China to, like, have to die yeah. to, because they hate their lives so much to uh, make them happen. Yeah, okay. So anyway, I guess that's kind of a tangent, but it's something I kind of wanted to talk to you about because I, I do, like, legitimately yeah, well, no, think that's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, sorry if... I, I don't mean to derail you so you can ignore this, but, like... So what... what um, you're saying we should... If we want to learn from this, you know... Are you getting at, like, why it failed in Yugoslavia? Um, or... No, because I don't think... I mean, he's saying this is part of why it, it failed, but mm-hmm. I'm just saying this is an important question to consider. My point is just that, like, I having a strong safety net, I think, could have cushioned a lot of these issues in a way that maybe this guy isn't considering, and that oh, I think okay. could have been worked out if Yugoslavia continued. But, I, I, like I said, I just think it's, like, an interesting question. So... He also talks about eventually how there was like a more wage disparity and also unemployment grew at some point, especially in Kosovo and Macedonia, actually. So, and I guess that probably has a lot to do with the fact that they were maybe underdeveloped and they ultimately went with the system where they didn't tax those, you know, like Slovenia and Croatia. They went with the lower taxes system. That ultimately wasn't bringing everybody along. Which I think is a big part of the problem. He says, in contrast, leaders in the Northwest wanted to implement an export-led growth model. Consequently, they supported greater economic liberalization Mm -hmm. and integration into foreign markets. They also opposed the tax plan, arguing that the more profitable enterprises should thrive unhindered by state intervention. Oof. Yeah, I know. It's like, well, then you're not really socialist, guys. Yeah. (laughs) By the early 1960s, the market reform wing with its base in the Northwest had won on several fronts. Self-management deepened and the country further integrated into foreign Western-dominated markets. Yugoslavia's development path export-led growth, largely financed through Western loans, would prove unstable. So then Perhaps he, intentionally. Yeah, so then he talks about this for a second. He has a quote, and then he starts, uh, By 1989... And I'm like, whoa, buddy, so we just went from... Yeah, what, 52? <laughs> yeah, from 1960s, where the reform wing won, to 1989. Yeah, that's a lot And of... that's like a big jump, and this is where I actually think, this is 
why it was impossible for uh, Yugoslavia to survive. And I think it has really nothing to do with all of these problems because nations go through disagreements about taxation, about industry, about all of that shit, Mm -hmm. right? And they have students protesting and still exist, right? But I think this is the part he left out that really surprised me the most and maybe the most skeptical of this article, which was, okay, so in 1973, uh, war broke out between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Mm -hmm. So the Saudis stayed neutral, but the U.S. supported Israel. At first, kind of like, basically under the darkness of night, until like one day they had like some kind of glitch where they actually were seen in daytime uh, resupplying Israel. Oh, wow. And so essentially that led to, like, after that, like, even Saudi Arabia, who is, like, our diehard ally, couldn't stay neutral, and OPEC decided to cut off oil, right? So during the... To, to us and Israel? To us and our allies, yeah, yeah, including Israel. You know, that was, like, a time when, like, people will talk about here in the 1970s, there being really long lines mm-hmm. and people with alternating license plate numbers, you know, whether you had right, odd right. or, you know, had to go on alternating days. They rationed. Yeah. Which, they then... Which is not the end of the world. Okay. But the <laughs> U.S. could... Like but was. the point is that the U.S. could ration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they then resumed selling oil to the U.S. and our allies, but now at 13 uh, dollars a barrel, whereas before it had been around $3 a barrel. So because of OPEC size, they ultimately dictated the price of oil for the world. I mean, they still do, obviously. I don't think I need to explain that to people. So obviously the consequences were far more reaching than just the U.S. and their Mm. allies. And they hurt the developing countries like Yugoslavia far more because they couldn't cut down on their consumption of oil and they don't have monetary reserves the way Mm -hmm. the U.S. does, right? Um, Obviously they needed oil as they're developing all this industry especially when a lot of the things that they were exporting were like, it was like extraction and like raw materials and stuff like that, all of which you need oil for and whose prices, like these commodities prices don't rise at the same level as the arbitrarily set prices of oil from OPEC now. Plus um, the dollar is just stronger, especially with regard to oil, because it's basically, especially back then was pegged to it, right? Yeah. Because you could only buy oil in dollars. Yeah, exactly. So it's always going to be more expensive to buy it with a different currency. Uh, yeah, that's like our greatest strength, yeah. <laughs> our economy's greatest strength. So so in order to pay for the imported fuel, Yugoslavia and other third world nations borrowed money from European and U.S. banks. Meanwhile, Which always works out. Uh-huh. Meanwhile, these banks are now flush with money from OPEC. <laughs> Because OPEC now has even more money than they used to have. What, and they put it in American banks? They put it in American and European banks because those are the most stable, Uh you know? And because they have the U.S. dollar, right? Mm. So so in order to make the interest payments on those deposits, the banks needed to make more loans. So they look for new borrowers. Uh, Here's the third world, right? Okay. They, so the banks needed money. Yeah. Yeah. But so they, yeah, because they have the interest on those deposits from OPEC are just, I mean, mm-hmm. they just need more money. So they, they need to make loans. Yeah. Yeah. So they look for new borrowers and they basically do kind of, it's like the subprime mortgage thing where they're just like ninja loans. They're like, mm-hmm. no assets, no job, no problem, right? Yeah. Like, so they're like not doing a great job, like checking to see what this money's going towards 
is it feasible that it'll get paid back? And in particular, like, this is a bad loan because it's going to... So they're taking... It's, it's they're supply. giving them a loan yeah. to go buy money... F- to give back to OPEC to buy oil mm. to sell com- to use to extract and then sell commodities that are never going to rise at the same rate as the cost of oil. Mm. Like it's very clear, I think, why this is a bad plan. Like yeah. they're using, they're essentially using OPEC money because that's what's in the banks to give money back to OPEC. Yeah, they're you know? back to the banks. Yeah, and in the meantime, they're they don't have a product yeah. that will ever make as much money as OPEC oil is going to make. Mm. In fact, Mexico was exporting oil at the time and still got into a cycle of debt through these loans. Wow. Yeah. So uh, anyway, eventually people realized there's no way that the countries can repay these loans. Um, and the loans were at um, adjustable, at varied I interest was rates. Ask, but I assumed they were. <laughs> so they were very low yeah. when there was a lot of credit because your interest rate is the cost of uh, um, credit, basically. Right? Okay, sure. So if you have, if there's a lot of credit available because yeah. the banks are flush with cash, mm-hmm. it's very low. And then once they realize, like, oh, this money coming back in because no one has the ability to pay it, interest credit dries up. up, the interest rate goes up. Yeah. yeah. That's how you have, know you have a sane system. When people <laughs> are less able to pay, the price goes up. Yeah. 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 Uh, so at this point, we have nations on the verge of failure. Um, and the World Bank and the IMF come onto the scene. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I feel like we should play, like, doomsday music at this point. You yeah, know, Because yeah. nothing good ever happens when the IMF and the World Bank get involved. Um, so, basically, they require structural adjustment, um, which means that you have to lower tariffs. So, basically, you have to lower the cost of importing goods mm. uh but the whole economy at least like in yugoslavia but in a lot of depends these on exports exactly yeah um so now yeah so now you're fucking you're up their economy the yeah. yeah uh you have to privatize public companies reduce government which is subsidies. A, it's a communist nation. yeah <laughs> yeah uh reduce government subsidies open uh economies rather than state control so basically like it's the antithesis of everything they're, like, working for. Yeah. And obviously this creates a lot of pressure. And, and it doesn't help the economy. No. Uh, in fact, like, now the IMF and the World Bank have technically moved away from, uh, like, they don't use the term structural adjustment anymore because mm-hmm. it's just so, mm-hmm. so clearly associated with tanking economies. Like, every yeah. economy that did this tanked afterwards anyway. Yeah. But in the meantime... Once the countries accepted these conditions, then the IMF and the World Bank would reward them with more loans, deepening their indebtedness. And these loans are basically enough to cover, like, I think it was, like, the fees and the interest. You know what I mean? Um, so they're never getting into the principal, even yeah. though they're doing all this stuff just to get these loans, just to pay the interest and the fees yeah. on these uh, private loans that they have now. So... That is how the entire, like, all the non-allied nations that Mm -hmm. Tito was, like, one of the kind of spearheads of that movement, like, we don't want to be part of the first world, we don't want to be capitalist, but we also don't want to be part of the Soviet Union, like, all of them became third world countries because of this. Well, that's how the term third world changed. Yes. From this non-alignment. To. To. A poor country. Yeah. 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 And that's kind of, that's the whole story of how we have 
third world countries is basically that linguistic change is so interesting yeah because it sums up a history that is like invisible to us yeah exactly and that's why i think yugoslav socialism failed more than anything else which is why economic warfare basically yeah and and as always our foreign policies just redound around the world i mean like Mm -hmm. so also the problems of um an economy based on oil yeah absolutely absolutely yeah, this is a very intersectional issue, actually. Yeah. yeah, which is why it's weird that it wasn't mentioned at all beyond just saying, by 1989, when Antti Markovic's reform government abolished self-management, the country was already in freefall. Crippling foreign debt, structural adjustment measures enforced by the IMF, and economic collapse amplified the centrifugal... Centrifugal. Centrifugal. Say again? Centrifugal, you know centrifugal. Centrifugal. I know what it means, but sometimes it's hard to say words. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a millennial, baby. We only read things. We don't talk to each other. <laughs> um, pulls of foreign markets. We just so, say like to each other. Different yeah. amounts of the word like. <laughs> yeah. Slobodan Milosevic's national movement in Serbia sparked similar reactionary campaigns mm-hmm. in neighboring republics, breeding distrust and feeding separatism. And then he talks about socialism's collapse in the early 1990s, which came with a series of devastating civil wars that fractured the region along ethnic lines and allowed Western military power and capital to more deeply penetrate the former federation. But he doesn't talk at all about like this whole history mm-hmm. with, I mean, I really just think like if you're going to have an article titled The Life and Death of Yugoslav Socialism, it's definitely like I... I found some of his critiques of Yugoslav socialism maybe even more convincing than you did, or interesting at least mm-hmm. to consider. But this is the death. This is the yeah. death of the entire non-aligned movement. Even, this is how we got the third world. Like yeah. n- no one was going to be able to survive that, whatever their idea. So he doesn't even was. use the word debt. Debt. He doesn't mention the debt at all. Well, he mentions crippling foreign debt, and he oh. mentions that there was structural adjustment. He just doesn't tell the story of it. But he doesn't tell it at all. Yeah. But if but you're it's the, same, the debt, It's sad, though. too, that it's the same thing that's happening now. Exactly. That is also now leading to, you know, nationalistic, ethnic... Yeah. Yeah, eth- And it's like those same fascism. pressures, like people in Greece, like Alexa and then it's those mm-hmm. same international pressures and organizations yeah. that prevent the people's will from ultimately being enacted, yeah. you know? He says, still in recent years, the phenomenon of Yugo nostalgia has emerged across the now independent states, especially among younger generations. Uh, the legacy of the country's independent path to socialism, with its emphasis on workers' self-management, plays a key role in this retrospective longing. And I think that this is really true. We saw this in Macedonia mm-hmm. when we were there. I heard people both our age, my parents' age, and my grandma's age talking about Yugo nostalgia, basically. Mm-hmm. And talking about how things were, especially like the older generations, talking about how there used to be this camaraderie, people would go visit each other all the time and stop by for coffee or go out for drinks, and that just doesn't happen anymore. I heard my grandma especially talking about this, and I was trying to tell her, like, that's because there's class difference now, you know? Mm -hmm. Some people can afford to go out for drinks, some people can't. Some people can afford to host someone over for coffee, and some people can't anymore. And then my parents were telling me how, like, even between their generation, even from when they would go back some years ago, um, there's been, like, people in their friend group who have kind of just, like, fallen 
off the friend group or out of the friend group and my mom was asking why and it's basically like well it's just uncomfortable you know he doesn't have a job so and it's uncomfortable for everybody yeah and it's really can't pay for anything yeah yeah Yeah, and it's really difficult and it sucks because these people they're visiting like my parents have lived here now like most of their lives almost like they're like high school friends so they Mm -hmm. had managed to be high school friends through some people leaving the country through the fall of Yugoslavia through the fall of Yugoslavia but ultimately capitalism is tearing Mm -hmm. them apart tearing human relations apart you know and and what do you get you get a rise of ethnic nationalism yeah you know like obviously fortunately socialism is becoming more popular again yeah, in at least Macedonia. Well, we saw, yeah, we saw a ton of Antifa mm-hmm. graffiti all over the place. A ton of pro-worker solidarity, pro-socialist graffiti everywhere, which was mm-hmm. so cool. And I loved a sticker that we saw. Uh, a change of leaders is the pleasure of fools. Create a self-managed society. Mm, self-management. Exactly. Yeah, I didn't even get that. Yeah, no, I was like really, I thought this could only be yeah. in a place like a former Yugoslav country cool. because... That's an idea that still exists there and I think is still... So self-management meant like running your workplace? Yeah, well, running your your workplace, your local community. Like my grandpa also So it's managed... like more like an ideology. It's like a... Yeah. It's a... Yeah, because yeah, the idea is like you kind of develop un- socialism under the conditions, which it's possible. And you want people to have as much control over their own lives as possible, mm-hmm. not the government. Yeah. So, like, my grandparents, like, that building that we stayed in my grandma's apartment. apartment building, yeah. yeah. Um, my grandpa, like, managed that for years because it was a co-op. Everybody owns their own apartment. Um, but then they would, like, elect someone to mm-hmm. manage, like, the finances, make sure everybody's dues are paid so they can, up, you know, do the upkeep on the building and stuff like that. And he would just get... He was, like, very diligent. So... He just got elected for, I mean, for a very long time to be the person who was in charge of that. But other people were in charge of it, too. And it and was came like, to collective decisions, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was the whole point, you know. So when you have this idea of self-management, it permeates like it's the workplace, it's mm-hmm. your home. It's Whereas now in that building. Local government. Now in that building, everybody owns their own apartment and they sell it if, as they wish. Yeah. And there isn't that collectivism. Not and now it's. Now it's, it's really like weird. really not taken care of that well. It's that, not taken that care of that well. Building. Some floors now seem to have like a common area and other floors don't. Mm-hmm. There oh, was they, a terrace. Yeah. Yeah. On top of my grandma's building that the I was top, really excited the, like, to top show. Floor, right there. Of, yeah. And it was like a cool place to hang out. I was like, oh, we'll get some beers and go sit up on the roof and hang yeah. out. And you can it see all of the It would have been the best Bicola. view in the city. It, it was an incredible view. And... Then my grandma was like, no, you can't go up there. That's They turned that all into yeah. apartments. Sold it's it, private. Yeah. yeah. Privatized it and sold it. Yeah. So it's a very different understanding nowadays. I mean, they had this like crazy conservative party in control for so long, mm-hmm. I think. like, But I can also imagine why under that system you get a lot of Yugo nostalgia too, you know, because people are like, wow, there was a completely different way of existing and man, oh man, does that look a lot better. An education that's free, And you most know? citizens were alive for it. Yeah. Or, like, my parents, like, showed us, we went up the mountain to Palistad, and they showed us, like, this camp that they used to go to for, like, eight weeks, ten weeks mm-hmm. every summer. 
because the idea was it's good for children to experience nature and fall in love with like the countryside yeah. and get fresh air and also to be independent from their parents for that period oh, of time. Cool. There's again that idea of like community of communal like we'll take care of the kids communally yeah. to some extent you know so it was on the side of the the big lake not oak creed but the other one no this was on pelister remember oh on pelister mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's kind of near the top wasn't it okay yeah yeah so there's this campsite for kids that has you know multiple big buildings that we walked through that are abandoned that have incredible views and of, like yeah the city but what what's interesting to me is like so people who went to those camps are adults now like you said they remember the way things were and of course there's mm-hmm. like you nostalgia for that but what's crazy is then when they had kids the conservative party for a while just privatized that not even privatized that camp they just made it for just like their kids that are like wow. that are in the party and like some of the like elites like other private rich citizens you know so they saw like a complete flip from the this idea of like community and raising our children together and self-management to this is for rich people yeah 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 because i was saying to you like if this was in america this would not be a kids camp where everybody gets to go for free this would be like a hilton you know like Mm -hmm. it's beautiful gorgeous views on the side of a beautiful mountain like with a ski resort nearby like that's in America, that doesn't, that's not land you get to go experience for free for weeks and weeks every summer just because you're a child who's, who belongs to this country. So I don't know. I it's, thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, it's sad, but interesting how you can see on a very personal level what this, you know, slide into both austerity and out of socialism into capitalism has done to people's lives. Yeah. Welcome to the Western world here. We're bringing you the advanced Western world. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's kind of the end of that article. I mean, he has, like, a closing here, but I don't think we really need to talk about it. I think our closing is better. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I guess I hope that that gives people some sense of what Yugoslavian history was and politics and economy and maybe a little bit of a better sense of why it's like insane to say Soviet Yugoslavia because it's like <laughs> really, really focused on being very different option of towards socialism from the yeah. Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, it's a real misread of economics and history and everything to And uh, maybe it offers uh, maybe it offers, you know, a different model for of socialism that not a lot of people are picking up on. That's what I think. There are people who call themselves Stalinist, who call themselves Maoist. But Bolsheviks, yeah. Yeah, but there aren't... Yeah, I'm always really surprised. Like, I belong to some uh, socialist groups on Facebook, and I'm always really surprised at the amount of times I see people talking about... Well, I mean, Trotskyites, which I, I can get with, you know, but like, yeah, people talking about being Leninists or I saw whatever. at least one or two people who said they're Hoxist. Like the Albanian dictator. Oh, weird. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, I don't hear a lot of people talking about Yugoslavian socialism. And, you know, while there may be other valid reasons that it failed beyond, I think, the one I highlighted the most. The debt. Yeah. I think that the ideas behind it are really strong, especially... A lot of times, I think Americans in particular will be like, oh, I don't know. I mean, socialism, I don't want, like, I don't want the government telling me what to do. Like, part of the reason I'm, like, on the left is because I believe in, like, freedom and stuff like that. And it's like, well, here's a system where they, like, tried to, it's, like, literally based on, like, what did he say? Like, withering the government away, you know? Yeah. So, 
it depends on what your understanding of the ultimate goals of communism or Marxism are, but I think for a lot of people, the ultimate goal would be like complete, like that, Mm self-management, a self-managed society versus, you know, one where we have a government from on high telling us how to live. So I think this is like a, at least an interesting path, a feasible path, a path I think is pretty, pretty solid sounding. Yeah. Especially also because it includes democracy. Where did we hear? Oh, it was about, it was, we read an article about rich people going to Burning Man. Mm. Remember? And how it's like a Burning Man has all these, is built on all these like ideas of freedom and liberty and, and personal liberty and stuff like that. But ultimately has gotten completely co-opted by rich people because they were saying like, in the article, the author's conclusion is like, no matter like how free the society you built is, if you don't like implement yeah. democracy, the resources will ultimately be right, monopolized right. by the rich. Because Burning Man has no democratic structure. It's yeah. just more it's libertarian. Like, the idea is like bring what you can. So everybody's supposed to bring something to make Burning Man happen. Yeah. But then the rich have started bringing their own like private camps that have yeah. like air conditioning and gourmet foods. <laughs> and they and, bring staff. They yeah. bring employees to yeah. work the whole time. At yeah, Burning and Man. more and more every year, Burning Man is starting to look like um, you know a Silicon Valley mushroom dream versus Mm -hmm. you know this like hippie communal experience that it was originally supposed to be because they are starting to have more and more outsized influence because they have the resources so i think that when we consider utopian society or consider our visions for the future or socialism or whatever it's important to consider democracy and you know to make sure that we put checks on the people who at least when we start out, have the most resources and therefore the most power. Yeah. Maybe we can talk more theory stuff like that in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to learn more about, like, Yugoslav ideas of communism. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's a bit of a meandering discussion, but... We'll have to edit it down, yeah. I think. I yeah. think it's been pretty long. Um, I think you should research it again sometime and teach me more. Okay. I'm interested. <laughs> Yeah, maybe a little more theory. This was, you know, a lot of history and a little bit of the underpinning theory. Yeah. But, yeah, so hopefully people will find this interesting and we can get um, a little more information about Yugoslav socialism out there because uh, I think just like in at that time period, the Soviet um, version really dominates in people's minds. And I think that there's uh, really good ideas here that shouldn't be overlooked. Yeah. In Soviet Yugoslavia? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Was that good? Yeah, that's good. All right. <laughs> I don't know. What were you going to say? Nothing. Okay. I was going to say, like, I don't know. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Whatever. Oh, yeah. We're, yeah. We're Look on... Look us up. It's Cold Pizza Twitter, Party. Twitter, on Facebook, Cold Pizza Party. We've gotten some more likes lately on our Facebook page, which is really cool. So if you're a recent liker or listener thank you for tuning in hopefully you like this we also talk about tv and you could leave us a review on itunes if you've ever heard a podcast you know that reviews help other people find us Mm -hmm. please leave us a nice review i think so far everyone who's reviewed us has which is really awesome and it also just makes us feel real good um from soviet yugoslavia signing out (laughs) 